it's amazing how far some of us go back because to be honest, I think you're right, about 30 years at least. Um, I was there in 1989, almost exactly this week, up at the top of the Nelk Building <laughs> in Berkeley. Uh, it's where I met Michael Sells the first time, I think, in person, and the earthquake, the earthquake was like two weeks after that. So I, I, it's kind of marked by the earthquake, you know, which is, was a big deal out there. I just missed it. I remember it being a total daze, but uh, if that was the first one in Berkeley, then that's still quite memorable. And uh, I just can't believe 30 years have passed, that's all. Okay. So the title has changed, the, well, just at the end there, Beyond Belief, Ibn Arabi and the Mysteries of Spiritual Realization, uh, really is a... It, it, you've all nicely prepared things because uh, there's constant references to alchemical language in here as to the text of the Quran. <laughs> you did so. I, I think for this crowd, most of you are aware of those things. But uh, just if what I did was that I've been working, I, I found this title, this keynote, uh, Love, Suffering, and Alchemy of Happiness, just incredibly stimulating. And it's kind of thinking about it 24 7 ever since the title was set out. But the result was I, I did a whole life review about five times over of you know, just examples you, you come up with to illustrate this question of the alchemy of happiness and the inseparability of love and suffering are uh, so intense that I, I got something that's quite dense here. And that's the worst thing you should do when you're teaching. I know that. I don't do this. I don't write out lectures for my classes because you have to be in the moment with people. But um, someday, this is, these things are always fun to reflect on and to read and read it in terms of your own life. So I'm pretty sure Stephen will get this either into the journal or he's talked about putting it into a separate off-print issue or something like that. So one way or another, you, or you can just write me at BC and get the... Uh, get the actual copy of what you're going to hear today, because most of the sentences, you need to kind of stop for four or five minutes, say paragraphs, and think, well, what are all of my illustrations, what he's very broadly alluding to here, and we can't, <laughs> we can't do it that way. So this, we should have done the workshop for this one in the first, which is this other handout, which I think, Mary, did you manage to see everybody gets, especially, it doesn't matter whether you come or not this afternoon, but I've tried to give uh, a list of some of the more universal places where people discover the, the Philosopher's Stone, where the alchemy of happiness takes place so that people can share about it. So, uh, as I said, even if you don't come, and we'll start with uh, Van Morrison. So we, I use music, too, not just, because <laughs> there's this wonderful truck driver song that Van Morrison has about, you know, every day waking up looking for the Philosopher's Stone. So, I'll start with that before we actually sit down. So um, anyway, uh, what, a couple of other things. So the title, Beyond Belief, it struck me. I, anybody who works with Ibn Arabi runs into people now and then. It's, it's less, I think as people have more in English or French aware that's out there that they can actually discover something of Ibn Arabi, they, they kind of shut up and start, you know. He's kind of got a lot of hooks to pull you in. but. Uh, 30 years ago, there were always people who come up and scream, you can't talk about this because you're not Muslim or you don't know Islam or something. Well, the people who'd say that themselves were like, they were talking to the mirror. <laughs> but I don't run into that as often nowadays because just because there's more of Ibn Arabi out there to read and discover, so they're not 
working with an imaginary Ibn Arabi, but you don't say that once you started to read him. But it's sometimes hard. It's much easier with some any of the great poets or even more popular spiritual writers in Islam to see the universality of what they're talking about, or even the Quran for that matter. But uh, with Ibn Arabi, it's, it can be, I think you were the one who said it can be complicated. <laughs> That's true, right? I mean, you know, when you pick up even things in English, it can be rather complicated. So last spring, I was, um, we had a comparative theology seminar group at BC, and I was, I was supposed to give a presentation. I thought, what, what is Tahkik religion? Well, I decided to start with a hadith that most of you know, a hadith Qudsi, which is in two different versions, uh, in both the Sahih Muslim and the Bukhari, so a very scripturally sound uh, and important hadith that really summarizes all of Ibn Arabi's teachings are in this hadith. It's the one that begins, somebody asked the Prophet, do we see our Lord? And uh, the person who asked is thinking, will we, after we've died, see our Lord? But the Arabic is about, and the Prophet responds to it in the here and now, and says, well, can you see the sun? And the cloud was saved. Well, course, but there's some problems <laughs> looking at the sun. Uh, or can you see the moon on a cloudless night? And again, that becomes an image of the entire world of creation, with all its changing, but still meaningfully changing shapes. And sometimes those dark nights when there is no moon, and the other ones, it's almost like the sun. And then he, uh, and then, uh, and he talks about, so, but the, the, the problem there is clouds. So what are the clouds in life that keep us from seeing things uh, according to the prophet's prayer, as they really are. Uh, yeah. And then the, uh, and then it goes on and you have that famous emphasis before you cross the bridge where God appears to people in all these different forms and they say, oh, I, I take refuge in God from this particular form in which God is manifesting. Doesn't damn them, doesn't throw them in hell, but it's just a reminder that we're always discovering new aspects of the divine reality. It's very I mean, life is bewildering. If it ceases to be bewildering, we're actually in hell and don't know it. <laughs> but uh, the bewilderments and challenges are always coming up, new ones, no matter how long you live. And then people are sent off across this bridge, narrower than a hair, sharper than a razor blade, and they're supposed to get across it to get to Ajahnah, to get to the ultimate human perfection. And not only that, but the bridge is filled with hooks and bushes and things that constantly pull us off of it. Uh, they actually, if you can float over it, you can do it instantly, as some of the prophets and people who are well-born might do. But for most of us, by the way, I, I, I have to look behind here. Okay, I was, I was thinking, here we are, the mysteries of the tabernacle and the veil. And I'm going to be talking about unveiling today. And so I figured there was surely some Hindu idol there. I remember with the, with the Helminskis, we'd usually end up in some Catholic, uh, you know, garrison or some other formerly Catholic place, and they'd kind of try and cover over either. They got sometimes it would be Ganesha, you know, the, the the Hindu deity, and sometimes it would be crosses. <laughs> here, I love it. It's a veil covering a blank wall. So that's that's more a symbol of life. But uh, I just want to be sure. My wife knows I can't watch a movie or read a book without turning to the end. I was just going to turn out, so it's one of my worst vices. <laughs> you know, I, I have curiosity, but I want to you know, solve it at the end. So um, uh, to get back to the point here. Yeah, so um, I, uh, and then, so I thought that for the class, and this is the professors in our area and the grad students, that this, this hadith would be very good because 
oh, and then of course the main part of it is all the different ways that people are pulled out of the fires of life. The hooks are the things that pull you into the fires and then there's all these different instruments God sends until there's no one, there's, there's, is there anyone here who has not done an ounce of good in their life? And God saves them as well. And that's fair. And by the way, nobody is going to teach that in the synagogue or the mosque or the church because it's just, it's just you know, preachers are there to warn people and scare them and so forth. And here's this fundamental Islamic text about even how the, because if you haven't done an ounce of good in life, it means you've done a terrible lot of bad. You know, so but even even God takes them out and washes them in the water of life, and then eventually, if they request it, they're actually brought into the garden. So they're they're endless ways of understanding that hadith, but it's a very concrete one. And I was just stunned. Everybody was kind of getting into all the different meanings and everything. And then our teacher of Buddhist studies, very well known, and, and everything said, "Well, this really doesn't have anything to do with Buddhism." But, and I stuck for a lie. I mean, really, I, I thought you were really smart, John, you know. What? It doesn't have anything to do with Buddhism. Uh, but, uh, so this, one of these problems for Ibn Arabi is people could kind of be closed off to what he's saying, either by, by one of the big blinders, and nobody's more blinded than academics, because you, you spend years and years learning the sort of, uh, to know blinders really well. You can call them lenses. You can only see the world with certain lenses. And so it's very easy to kind of see how Ibn Arabi undermines the ulama of every tradition and every, every time in universities and all. But um, anyway, so beyond belief, because obviously to get to what he's always wanting us to see, you have to go beyond our etiquette, our beliefs, word that doesn't exist in the Quran, by the way and discover the realities of that sun and that moon. Uh, so, the, uh, yeah, so here he says, by the way, the, the title here also was, we had to send in titles before we'd written these things, so that's always a problem. But uh, in this one, I just wanted to say, what you can see now is at the very end of the Futuhat, when he's summing up what's there, after chapter five, six, and so at the very end, he says, um, people are only a story. All of them. So be the best story they hear. So, it's not just story. I mean, it's not hadith in the sense that it becomes a technical term, but it's also got that root of hadatha, to happen anew. So people are only a fresh story. Our lives are always uh, teachings. And, of course, the conjunction is be the best one of, of that, that they hear, be the best that you can. That sounds like an advertising slogan, too. <laughs> Well, that was the army that said, was it the army of the Marines? Be the best. Uh, that's the you can be. Yeah. I think so, yeah. That's uh, what the army is saying here. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to, yeah, I think it was one of the military <laughs> branches. Anyway, uh, so uh, this is about uh, what's behind the stories, or what can be behind the stories. Uh, so, Rahim, um, on my glasses. Um, when I talk to my class, I usually just sit at a table uh, in front of the class, but I'm not at all sure that these won't flip over, so I'm going to stand and deliver this. I, I don't like the, uh, the preacher's mode here, but I'll hold it up. So I, I don't like to read things, but my apologies today. Surely there can be no more fitting symbol for the mysteries of grace and spiritual realization than that of the elusive philosopher's stone. 
Everyone has experienced many times in so many different ways the unexpected or long-sought transformation of the familiar lead of our earthly existence into the timeless treasures of lasting insight and meaning. And everyone has also experienced at least as many times the frustrating search to discover that mysterious, all too evanescent elixir, or discover, to rediscover it, yeah. So when I was notified about the theme of this year's symposium, it seemed that we could just sit down and have everyone share some of their own telling discovery of that alchemical gift and quest, as I hope we can do together for a while after, in this afternoon's workshop. For Nibarabi's language, at least, the dialectic unfolding between the paired names of love and suffering, properly understood, would seem to exhaust the inner dimension of all our earthly dramas, all of them. In his Arabic, there are words, in his, there are words, some of them among the familiar litany of divine names, for more than 40 different meanings and dimensions of love, terms for appreciation, value, sensitivity, communion, empathy, and other integral aspects, all beyond our English default meaning of desire. Uh, just by way, of, I wanted to mention this because did Nasir Khamir ever come to one of our symposium in the States or England? In England, yeah, because he's a Tunisian artist, yeah. filmmaker. Baba Aziz is the great film of his that you've probably seen. And he was, it, when we were at Morsia, he had 36 names of love in Arabic. But, uh, and he wanted me to write the preface to this book when he came out of it. Well, he's now on 47 or something like that, so I don't know if the book will ever get done because he keeps discovering. It's such an image of our life. We keep discovering new images, dimensions of love. And even if we don't have words for them, like here, because we still are discovering them. And so I don't know whether that book will ever appear. But he, he was doing calligraphy for it and, and you know, basic paintings of these uh, divine names. So, and suffering, as anyone who freaks Rumi and other great Islamic mystical poets knows well, covers all the experiential contrasts, indeed, the often inseparable companions of these endless dimensions of love. So in Persian, they say, being a, a Quranic term, but this kind of hangover, sadness, or incompletion of love, the kinds of things, again, that uh, uh, Don uh, spoke of so well this morning. So finally, sa'ada, or happiness, in the eschatological language of the Quran, refers not to some passing superficial emotion among many others, but rather to the ultimate intrinsic state of the truly blessed, to the ultimate good, the complete fulfillment of the highest human perfection, or kamal. And, it, and as it happens, synchronicity being one of the most familiar experiential illustrations of this alchemy of happiness, just after I received the email invitation to this symposium, I opened to the following quatrain of Rumi that perfectly sums up the challenges and depths of this familiar quest, beginning with spiritual alchemy, the gold of all events, as he says, the Tsar and Zabane, as its ex explicit subject or beginning. As in the Quran, and so often in Rumi's verses, God, or the ultimately real Ahak, is the initial speaker of these lines. I'm going to give it in the Persian because it is beautiful poetry and music before I do the translation. So, Ruyam Chuzara. Is there anybody here who knows Persian? So, the scholars. <laughs> yeah, okay. Anyway, it's still beautiful even if you don't know that language. So, Ruyam Chuzara Zamane Mibin. Inashk chudarnane bibi omapurs. Welcome. Avale darune khane azman matala. Khun bardar astane mibin omapurs. My face, and this is the watch Allah, after every return we see the face. My face 
keep seeing it as the gold of this year's, this world's vicissitudes, the Zara Zamanit. And don't ask. These tears, keep seeing them as pomegranate seeds that is bitter and then sweet if you hopefully you've all tasted pomegranates, common Persian poetic imagery for life. And don't ask. Uh, by the way, Nardane in Persian also has this uh, double meaning of seeds of fire, seeds of hell <laughs> as well, but you have to know the Arabic to catch that side of it, otherwise pomegranate seeds. Don't seek for me the inner states, the sacred heart, the haram of that house, that temple, that is the, the ultimate divine reality. The blood on the doorstep of that sanctuary, keep seeing it, keep seeking the suffering in life, but don't ask. You don't, the whole point is you, you don't get to the gold of suffering and of life's challenges by asking. You have to actually live through them. It's not an intellectual uh, answer that you can put into words, as we'll see with the Rumi at the end here. So first part, what does Ibn Arabi believe or teach? Any student of Ibn Arabi soon encounters one of the most common and quite understandable questions that are raised by curious individuals who somehow heard about him, his name, whether positively or pejoratively, without having read or delved very seriously into his writings, whether in Arabic or in some translation. That question is, what are the Sheikh's basic teachings, principles, beliefs, etc.? Depending on the questioner's own particular background and interest, they may be expecting a more theological and religious response, or a more philosophical one, a more theoretical and abstract answer, or a more practical one. Within his subsequent Islamic tradition, particularly in those Eastern languages, the mashrik of the expanding Muslim world, where the requisite mastery of Ibn Arabi's richly scriptural Arabic was normally the province of a small intellectual and religious elite, the long series of learned commentaries and summaries of Ibn Arabi's writings most often reflected the demands of that learned group, the ulama, seen broadly, for such systematic answers. And very similar learned responses are still typically demanded of graduate students, thesis writers, and translators in today's academia, wherever that may be. And speaking of this crowd, um, I should ask you if you're at all curious, we've been going, well, it started 12 years ago, but we've been going about seven or eight years regularly with a, a seminar both semesters with all the people in the Boston area who are interested in uh, reading Ibn Arabi or studying him closely. We have artists, playwrights, uh, professors of Americana music, as well as grad students and professors in related Islamic fields. So, you know, sometimes there'll be 15, 20 people there. We had four philosophers again last time. <laughs> we don't go very far. If we have philosophers <laughs> at the <laughs> seminar, they, they raise so many questions that we might get through one line in, in three hours. <laughs> but it's true, they just can't let go, you know. <laughs> okay. Their, their theme is ask, 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 ask. So Ruby said, don't ask, they want to ask. You know, so. But it's a mixed group of a very broad group of people. Dom, you know, you were with us for a while. And we've switched websites, so now, but if you want to get that, uh, it's like Harvard, I don't know, an RV seminar, so just, just write me at BC and I'll send you the, the connection and you can get the recordings, at least for what we're doing this year and eventually we'll get everything moved over from a different website to this website. There's also, we'll have all sorts of other useful tools, translations, studies, and so forth for working with Ibn Arabi, if you're all curious. But the heart of it really is these recordings, a very close reading of the Futuhat, although we did the Fusus over two years as well. Um, 
Let's see, within that academic context, it is easy to see that study and teaching of Imrabi's works is a kind of highly demanding intellectual puzzle, almost like the, the Times of London crossword puzzle. It's beyond the New York Times one. Since few specialists indeed would ever dare to assert that they've actually understood all the mysterious illusions and carefully posed challenges of the Sheikh's major writings. Indeed, that elaborately academic approach might at first seem almost inescapable since Ibn Arabi himself devotes much of the long prologue, the muqaddimah of his magnum opus, the Futuhat, the Meccan Illuminations, to carefully explain the different kinds of knowing contained in that work, and especially the very different corresponding levels of understanding, learning, symbolism, and intuitive spiritual capacity that various groups of readers will bring to its comprehension and interpretation. One of the most explicit of these, those essential interpretive guidelines is the following short passage at the end of his long introduction to the Futuhat, just before his readers embark on reading the book itself. So then he says, as for presenting the credo of the quintessence of the spiritual elite, the chas al-khawas, I've not given that in detail in any one place because of the profundities it contains. But I've given it scattered, and the word he used, tabdid, is one that scholars used to talk about the way teachings are threaded throughout the Quran, throughout the chapters of this book, exhaustively and clearly explained, but in different places, as we mentioned. Now, this is the important part. So those on whom God has bestowed the understanding of these things will recognize them and distinguish them from other matters. For this is the true knowing, and the veridical saying, okay, I, I don't remember the Arabic exactly, and there's no goal beyond it. The blind and the truly seeing are alike in its regard, and it brings together things most far and most near and conjoins the most high and the most low. Again, this conjunctio oppositorum is something that both speakers wrote about, talked about earlier today. Now, students of the Futuhat quickly become aware of the distinctive rhetorical methods that Ibn Arabi employs to signal those particular topics and insights, which are directed specifically towards such well-prepared or uniquely qualified readers. Sections which are boldly highlighted throughout every chapter of the Futuhat by short, intensely imperative demands to know, ifham, truly understand, recognize, araf, realize, hakik, and so on, the deeper lessons of an often mysterious and elusive reading section. These include passages whose deeper spiritual meanings are often made more explicit in the opening poems of each chapter, as well as in the subtle indications of each chapter's inner meanings and guiding spiritual mysteries, yasrar, that are sequentially elaborated in gnomic form throughout his penultimate chapter 559, which is really the key to the entire book. But the particular relevance of the short passage from the Sheikh's introduction just translated above to the subject of this symposium lies in its paradoxical second half. That is to say, in the fact that the actual existential mystery of this philosopher's stone is profoundly shared by all human beings, the high and low alike. Just as the face of God from those celebrated Quranic verses and Surah al-Baqarah alluded to in Rumi's opening above constantly reveals itself universally in things most far and near. That, that verse has been, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So everybody's getting to see the face of God, but uh, if you're gonna see it entirely, you have to turn towards the Maghrib as well as the Mashrik and not always turn away. The, the, the praise isn't really wherever you turn, it's where, whatever you turn away from, there you will discover the face of God. So it's a profound and complex ayah of the Quran, and that Rumi's poem we just read is all about that. Part two, faces and facets of the mysteries of grace. 
When we were informed of a theme for the symposium, I had already begun thinking of composing a book devoted specifically to the central dimension of spiritual realization that arises everywhere in the Futuhat, Tahkik and Mohakik being, in fact, recurrent Akbari technical expressions that were often adopted by the later Eastern interpreters of Ibn Arabi to describe his distinctive combination of intellectual exposition and theological justification with the indispensable experiential insight and illuminating spiritual guidance that, that he always points to or presupposes in the part of his intended readers. Uh, Haq, by the way, this root of Taqiq and Mohakik is both what is real and what is right. Um, in English, people often only mention one of those dimensions of Haq, but actually you, you're very modest uh, in, in saying you had trouble with the Arabic, what, which term I forget now, oh, Aziz because pretty much every key term in the Quran has four or five fundamental meanings and they're all relevant and haq being one of those. And yeah, so you don't have to become a grad student of Arabic, but you sure have to pay close attention to those footnotes where the translator mm -hmm. says, uh, uh, I, I'm helpless here. Here's what the Arabic means. So, so every time I mention realization, that's not just Figuring something out, it's also practicing it and what its consequences are in life. So Taqiq has both those dimensions. So in preparation for this talk, I started out by simply listing a few of those recurrent spiritual insights, themes, or challenges in Ibn Arabi's works, whose comprehension and realization requires, in each case, a particular necessarily personal inspired unveiling or kashf. Some of that tentative list of such recurrent instances of grace, spiritual discovery, and witnessing, or shahood, the other term, that Sufis use, in no way meant to be complete or exhaustive or briefly listed in the handout for this afternoon's workshop. But in order to illustrate the same incidents of spiritual alchemy, we could just as easily have referred here to detailed list of the key spiritual virtues in the Quran, the very building blocks of the Quran, interstates of awareness and their outward active expressions, which again can only be known and realized in similarly mysterious fashion. Uh, let me just uh, recall what uh, what Tom had to say about Sabra this morning. You, you, you translated it as perseverance or patience or whatever. But Sabra is actually, most of that is just um, uh, making a virtue of necessity, shall we say. Sabra, that's why Hazrat uh, Yaqub is as important as, as Job in the, in the Quran. But Sabra is this active inner working with God to discover the meanings of all the hells we pass through in the course of our life. And that activeness and, that, and the gifts, the divine gifts that come from it, is not something you can learn or teach in a school or whatever. And every other spiritual virtue in the Quran is the same way, that that religion, like other religions, translates into this earthly ethical actions and adab and so forth. But the truth is, is any... Uh, Perception of the face of God is something that in, involves this alchemy of illumination of kashf and shuhud. For the sake of simplicity and brevity, I will begin here with the familiar famous case of Ibn Arabi's repeated references to the experientially grounded discovery of the reality of tajdeed al-khalq, the ever-renewed creation of literally everything being newly brought into being, wujud in every instance. Another example where wujud in Ibn Arabi never loses that sense of our individual finding and discovery of something. It, it's so far, it's unbelievably far from the abstract uh, being of the philosophers. I mean, it's, it may be being, but it's existence in the way that, again, both our speakers have pointed out, is something that we have to discover. 
So Tajilkov, um, the discoverer of everything being brought into being at every instant in direct relation to its divine source and ground. This illustration stands out so clearly because I can, for me, because I can still remember how Toshiku Zutsu, in so many sessions of our years-long seminar on Ibn Arabi's Vessels of Wisdom, I only did three years of it, I think it lasted 11, would again and again point to expressions of this same realized insight in at least a dozen other poetic and religious traditions. Um, and here I have a footnote. Uh, for myself, I found the closest artistic representation of that reality I've ever personally encountered was in that streaming green metaphysical backdrop that recurs behind the familiar appearances of our taken for granted real world to those who can see reality more deeply in the matrix, particularly in the first one before it's kind of becomes a, uh, a prop, you know, but it's pretty stunning when you suddenly see that, is it Neil? who can kindly see the reality behind the apparent reality of the world. And that was a, that, that's actually very close to what it feels like. Um, let's see, yeah, Izutsu. Uh, okay, several years later, as the unexpected dramatic sequel to some particularly revealing spiritual exercises, maybe I talk about it this afternoon. We won't record this afternoon's workshop, so don't worry, you can actually talk openly. I finally experienced the unforgettable unveiling of at least something of what Izutsu and Ibn Arabi have been describing. But much more familiar, but I, much more, yeah, of course that I would, this would take 10 minutes to do, but it's, it's not working out that way. I'm only at page five, so my apologies. Okay. But much more familiar, visibly universal illustrations of the same spiritual alchemy, alluded to more or less, more or less explicitly on virtually every page of the Futuhat are given in each person's unique set of, of similarly unforgettable and transformative experiences, whether in dream visions or in everyday life, whether with an earthly guide or one from above this world, and whether in this life or somehow before this life, of those guiding acts of grace, the karamat, apparent interventions, surprising synchronicities, and serendipitous formative events that together shape and direct each individual's unfolding spiritual destiny. The unique constellation, and unique is the key word here, of these given individually particular alchemical elements involved in this lifelong path of transformation is suggested by some of the most common recurrent technical terms in Ibn Arabi's discussions of spiritual growth and development. Istadad, or each individual's unique endowment of spiritual preparedness or readiness at each stage of life. Anaya, or providential divine caring, a handy shorthand for all the karmic precedents and opportunities uniquely marking out each individual, each person's earthly life. Walaya, the panoply of all our decisive experiences of divine proximity, love, guidance, and caring. And my favorite, Makarallah, the surprisingly meaningful, ultimately beneficent, yet deeply surprising twists of a plan with a capital P that dwarfs our own intended personal projects and scheming. Or the unsuspected discoveries of deeper purpose direction and fulfillment and so on. And every one of those things is what is included in love as we heard earlier today. Time permitting, we can turn later in the workshop to any number of other familiar Akbari technical expressions for this alchemy of grace. Uh, many of them are out there in English here. Words and symbols that musically reflect all the different phenomenological registers of life. The mysteries of eschatology, of arts, imagination and creativity, of the divine presences and levels of being, of the facets of love, nature, and beauty, of blessings, gratitude, and praise, 
of the ethical obligations of self-sacrifice, surrender, commitment, and true service, of the depths of prayer, charity, and the other acts of devotion, the ibadat, and so on and on. So what's here is just literally the, the first visible tip of, of this iceberg. Iceberg we call life. Now the fundamental, I like that image because we're always crashing. Now the fundamental observation we must always come back to, whatever aspects, yeah, I mean, it is clear, right? I mean, it's, life is like you learn, oh, I can't, I'm not gonna run into that iceberg again, so I'll turn this way, and guess what? You, <laughs> oh, that one, I wasn't looking there, I was still looking in the rearview mirror at the iceberg I just escaped from. So, um, now the fundamental observation we must always come back to, whatever aspect of life's alchemy of happiness we begin by tracing, is that the deepest insights and intentions throughout Ibn Arabi's writings depend entirely on each reader's own ongoing provision of the actual experiences of grace, transformation, and illumination that are the author's subject. If you get nothing out of this lecture, that's it. They depend entirely on our own ongoing provision of the actual experiences of grace, transformation, and illumination that the author's subject. The author's subject. I think this is what my Buddhist colleague couldn't get, is that we, we don't, writings don't cause reality. Reality is what informs our awareness of writings, teachings, all the rest, music, art, all the rest. So Ibn Arabi's peculiar rhetoric of realization distances it might initially seem from the classical spiritual poetry of Rumi and his peers always begins with the task of eliciting or evoking or recalling but not really causing each reader's own experience of the alchemical process in question. Since this decisive feature of all of Ibn Arabi's works is so often lost in mistranslation, it is worth noting very clearly that these foundational discoveries, that is, the moments of wujud as providential finding, are not somehow caused by the readers familiar with the particular religious, theological, or philosophical symbols and teachings that may be brought into a discussion. At most, those receding intellectual frameworks for discussion always depend on the student's ability to recognize that a certain experienced dimension of reality, the haq behind taqiq, behind the realization, matches up with those symbolic, cultural, and linguistic expressions. This point is particularly well illustrated by the key akbari theme and unforgettable experience of Hira, which I translate as inspired ecstatic bewilderment and infused awareness. I, I'm sorry, I don't have the PowerPoint up there, developed by our other speakers today. If we can for a moment at least acknowledge the centrality of each reader's life and particularly relevant spiritual experience to effective and productive meditation at Ibn Arbi's writings, then that shift in perspective naturally leads to very different ways of viewing and experiencing his works. Approaches that are perhaps closer to the evocative, lasting alchemical impact of great poetry or writing or music than the familiar issues and conceptual parameters or blinders of philosophy and theology. To start with the most obvious of those changed perspectives, it becomes evident that the Sheikh's arguments are meant to illuminate the meanings of his reader's life itself. Uh, let's see. Okay, that's why, uh, that's why nobody's done a full translation of Ibn Arabi. Each momentary point or discussion is not the intended story in itself, but only some potential particular facet of the immensely complex new personal story, the hadith in the sense of his closing words, that must be brought into play by each reader. Uh, and we'll see the, uh, so that's in the uh, workshop, beginning of the workshop. Second, recognizing the critical role of these alchemical elements of grace and mystery in Ibn Arabi's reflections should constantly turn the engaged reader's attention, as the Sheikh surely intended, 
away from the intellectual, elaborate intellectual dialect of his writing and back toward the ongoing source and context of those illuminations. Even a few moments' reflection on the spiritual experiences he is referencing cannot help but remind us that they are always contextually dependent on an immense set of determined the previous givens. This is the element of takdir, of qadr, in, in Islamic theological terms. That is, in the thematic language of this symposium, the alchemical flashes of grace and true knowing, marifat, marifat, are intriguingly embedded in each life's complexly interwoven series of interactions of love and suffering, from the most uniquely personal perceptions to the vast cosmic and metaphysical stage settings that together constitute each and all life, and not just on this planet. So the quest for that philosopher's stone forcibly leads or entices and subtly seduces us in many directions, both inward and upward, yet also outward, where the task of communicating and actualizing the fruits of those experiments are concerned. Finally, reflecting on those alchemical moments that each reader brings to Ibn Arvi's work is a healthy reminder that the writings themselves do not ordinarily pretend to cause the unveilings in question. We can't voluntarily or intentionally repeat an actual experience of unveiling or witnessing, not in this Sufi sense of those terms. And one's memory of such transformations is not at all the same as the original reality. Our natural tendency to try, unsuccessfully of course, to recreate such alchemical occasions through revisiting or recreating the accompanying conditions or circumstances only reminds us that those moments of transformation are indeed, from our ego's perspective, truly mysteries, our divine gifts, asrar, or mawahib of grace. When a particular perception of, of um, here. I, I put in a lot of additions here that I can't always read. Well, whenever the particular perception of a deeper reality, haq, is bestowed and received, the only thing that we can personally control, and this is important, that what we control is our attentiveness, our tawajah, our eventual reflection, tafakur, that is fruitful reflection, Quranic term, on the tafakur filayat, and the right action that potentially flows from our reflective attention to those divine signs. I say right action, but the important thing is action, because if it's wrong action, we'll get another sign saying, uh, 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 you just crashed, you know. So the effect, active, fruitful, synergistic combination of these further personal contributions, that attentiveness, reflection, and right action, is realization, taqiq, uh, untransmatable, but peculiarly human alchemy of happiness. One final practical caution. In each case, while intellectual reflection and exploring the contrast of our own experiences of mystery, with those shared by others, can deepen and illuminate our own experience of transformation. Such comparisons alone cannot substitute for that actual experience. Our alchemical encounters with what the Quran calls life's transformative tests and purifying trials, bala, imtihan, and so forth. And by the way, imtihan is, in the Quranic language, is the uh, smelting of metals, so base metals of the ore, so that the gold comes to the top. Well, anytime you read the word test and somebody's talking about the Quran, that's the process that's being involved. I'm afraid the English word test doesn't go anywhere near the Zara Zaman, that gold of life's experiences. Of love and suffering comes not through willful choice, but through each uh, episode or each case stage of the often painfully sought graces of sabr, elusive surrender, and providential finding, which you or as a spiritual teacher of mine once memorably responded to the question, how do we know when we're experiencing a test? 
I think the person was jealous that people had such good testing, <laughs> much less. I remember, I'll never forget his answer. He says, if you need to ask, it isn't one. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, it's like, if, yeah, I, I, that is just, that's one of those nuggets of spiritual grace and imaginalist that I've just never forgotten. Because, yeah, if you need to ask, it isn't one. Uh, a few further implications, this is the page and a half of conclusion. As we begin to acknowledge more deeply the foundational role of spiritual alchemy at Ibn Arabi's work, one cannot help but think of the telling anecdote that Titus Burkhart, you've heard that name before, then nearing the end of his life, recounts in his preface to Ralph Austin's translation of the Fusuz al-Hikmah, the Vessels of Wisdom. During his early years of study in the ancient Moroccan city of Fez, Burkhart was stopped in its narrowly winding streets by a wizened old man who noticed that this strange foreign youth was proudly carrying back to his study the four weighty volumes of the lithographed standard edition of Ibn Arabi's immense Futuhat, and they are heavy. The old man asked him simply, why have you bothered to buy those heavy tomes? By the time you're able to understand them, you won't need them. Uh, truer words were never spoken. <laughs> Since the, I mean, really, it was like, he, he, Somebody must have twisted his arm to write that in the pursuits. Since the current conventions of academic life and public discussion would ordinarily make any deeper explicit sharing of this theme of spiritual alchemy rather challenging at best, whether, whether that be in Ibn Arabi or other teachers of other traditions, um, we may conclude with a few other practical consequences, each of them broader than mere lessons, though, that emerge whenever we bring together and begin to explore those transformative moments of realization that what, of what Ibn Arabi elsewhere calls our um, unique human new story. Uh, again, that which precedes our handout this afternoon or workshop. First, not knowing. Throughout life, by the way, in academia, like the dirtiest word you can say is not knowing. Have you been, have you ever been to grad school? I mean, undergraduates get away with it. They're like, this is basically our educational system is like the parable of the emperor's new clothes. You know, so grad students are unable to utter the words I don't know <laughs> because you'll get in terrible trouble doing so. So you can't rely on them to lead any kind of discussion. So you really rely on either the, the undergrads or like the musicians, poets, artists, and so forth who don't care anymore. Um, so, um, okay, so not knowing. Throughout life, all sorts of new forms and capacities of understanding and often transformative awareness emerge from our mysterious moments of grace and inspired knowing. By the way, in real life, the equivalent of not knowing is called failure. But the twin, or you know, ignorance too, but the twinned awareness of our own very limited role and of the deeper intimate realities of the source of that inspiration are ever increasing precisely alongside whatever particular insights we have learned. In other words, as you go up in this mirage, if we go up a mountain, on the, it's like a mirage, we, we see the landscape more clearly around us. But in this case, in a mirage, the landscape, you're not supposed to be looking down, you're supposed to be looking up. And that always is incomplete, no matter how far you climb that mountain. Um, Let's see, the endlessly unfolding discovery is one ongoing result of and underlies Ibn Arabi's constantly repeated references to the uh, pursuit of Hira, of divinely gifted bewilderment. Secondly, realizing more fully where or who this philosopher's stone comes from and how differently this alchemy is manifested at key points in each person's life 
This is really reinforces our profound awareness of the individuality, uniqueness, and inimitability of every individual's unfolding path. This discovery is rarely popular with institutions and movements in any age. I, I can add it's not popular with parents either. But it does, uh, because I'm constantly uh, wrestling with the individuality, uniqueness, and inability of uh, certain of my children's uh, chosen direction in life. But it does, first of all, uh, but, oh, but it does under, beneficently undermine, undermine the intellectual and spiritual temptations of elitism and competitiveness or invidious comparison. The combination of these two preceding observations of not knowing and the uniqueness of each spiritual path suggests in contrast a healthy perspective, humility, modesty, and ever deepening appreciation and thankfulness of shukra and hamd with regard to those mysterious gifts of grace wherever and however they may be encountered. Another word for that practical ethical consequence is surrender, taslim. Finally, one more practical and easy, ver easily verifiable pedagogical consequence. Wherever effective communication is concerned, whatever truly passes and it, it can at least be conveyed from such mysterious alchemical experiences, is the actually experienced momentary uh, specific reality, the haq, and not so much our later intellectual, rationally pedestrian conclusions and interpretations. Hence our closing here with another quatrain of Rumi, another Rubai of Rumi, that sums up and hopefully leads far beyond these initial reflections on the alchemical interplay of love and suffering. Again, I'm going to read the version first. Ba pirecherad nahofte migoftardush. Zaman, Sohana Sir Jahan, Sir Jahan, each papoosh, Narmak, Narmak, Mara, Amigoft, the goosh, Kin Diranist, Hoftani East, Hamush. There's a wonderful scene that says the same thing at the end of Wings of Desire, the Handle over Berlin, which I've used for years in courses, where um, this angel who's come into human kind of it's a, it's uh, when Winder's retelling via Goethe and Hafez of the story of Islam, Quranic story of creation, um, the angel Damia, who's just, just come, decided to come down and live a human life to live out that love that he could, can't experience as pure spirit, he sees Peter Falk and he knows that Peter Falk knows about this, that he must be one of those. He doesn't yet realize that everyone is in his situation, but he thinks Peter Falk has the key here. So he says, tell me everything. He catches him at a food stand on the, in the middle of Berlin. Tell me everything. Very excited, you know. And then Peter Falk responds, that's, that's the beauty of it, the joy of it. You have to find it all out for yourself. <laughs> so last night, and this is douche in the Persian, or to all the other Eastern poetic languages, last night is where the soul comes from, the spirit that was pure spirit that was before its earthly bodily appearance, or perhaps you could say inwardly and spiritually in the midst of life on earth, I, the ego, was asking the divine master of all intelligence, Pira Khirad, the Sahib al uh, not the universal Akhna, not the our little minds, don't hide from me a single word of the mystery of the earthly world, the Sir Jahan. So, therefore, softly, tenderly, he keeps on whispering in my ear, and by the way, anytime these poets talk of whispering in their ear, it is an intentionally erotic image. Is there anybody here who doesn't know what they're talking about? 
talk about whispering in the ear. Uh, teenagers have to discover this, but usually they figure it out before they start reading this kind of poetry or reading the Songs of Solomon. So softly, tenderly, that master kept on whispering in my ear. This is something you have to see. It can't be spoken. Hush, be still, and start to listen. This Hamush is one of Rumi's favorite pen names throughout the Ghazals. This is the one of Shams. Kindiranist, Goftanist, Hamush. Thank you for your patience.